0: Hello and happy new year. Very chilly new year if you're in Britain. Welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Boris Johnson giving press conferences about COVID restrictions, Keir Starmer self-isolating due to COVID restrictions, Conservative MPs angry about COVID restrictions, a delayed levelling up white paper and the EU and the UK at loggerheads about Brexit. Well, in those respects, 2022 is feeling a lot like 2021, but it's not going to do for much longer. We've got a whole new set of things to talk about. Inflation is rising. Taxes will too. Energy bills are soaring. What does that mean for people, for the economy, for the government? We're going to look hard at the numbers. And what about that levelling up white paper? Why is it delayed? Again, what's going to be in it? And will the government show that it can indeed level up Britain? We'll take a look. And then, with a sense of inevitability, we'll turn to Brexit. New rules, new minister, same old obstacles, all that to come. So joining me in the virtual studio, fresh from a festive break, full of the joys of January, our IFG senior fellow, Giles Wilkes. Hi, Giles.
1: Good afternoon, Bronwyn. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year to you. And we've also got IFG chief economist, Gemma Tetlow. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted to be joined by the FT's economics editor, Chris Giles. Hi, Chris. How are you?
2: I'm very well. Thank you very much Bronwyn and Happy New Year.
0: Thank you very much. You said you've just been writing a piece on how miserable we're all going to be in April.
2: Yes it's a one of the, I think it's a piece I'll write many times in the next three months. It is going to be quite the remarkable squeeze on household incomes. I think and I've been calculating and I had a chat with the Institute for Fiscal Studies before talking here that I think and they agree that it must be the biggest one-off squeeze to have hit households probably in a generation certainly since the financial crisis in 2008 2009 because we've got three things going on uh two of which will hit in in april one is the energy price rises which look like likely to be eye-wateringly large i mean we're talking sort of 50 percent increase in bills for the vast majority
0: so what does that mean in money you've taken us directly into our first topic which is the economy and how tight it, it all is so thanks for that what does that What does that mean for for the average household in pounds as opposed to percentages?
2: Okay, so in pounds, we th- off gem the regulator says the typical bill at the moment is one thousand two hundred and seventy seven pounds a year. That's gas and electricity combined. The sort of increase we're looking at suggests that that typical bill will go up to about two thousand pounds, so fifty six percent. Increase so this is figures from Investec, but no one seems to think it's far off that sort of level. depends in a little bit of what happens in the wholesale energy markets. but that sort of seven hundred pound hit to household budgets, if you that compare that with what people spend on discretionary items, so you say you take out net rent, mortgage payments, food, and other utilities of so water bills. Uh, that means it's about a 4% hit to uh, discretionary spending of of the average household in the UK. That is a enormous hit. That's the sort of size of hit in one month from energy alone of a decent sized recession. Uh, that's the sort of thing it is. And on top of that, we've got big tax increases. We've got national insurance rises coming in. We've got income tax rises because all the thresholds and allowances are being frozen in cash terms and we're going to have high inflation and all of this is coming on top of price rises that are already hitting household budgets pretty hard from last year with particular increases in food food prices uh, adding to general price rises and making the squeeze on incomes coming in april to be really really nasty and really difficult for the government
0: so, so and Angela Rayner, who was filling in for Keir Starmer this week's Prime Minister's Questions, was quick to recite all this list to the Prime Minister. Chris, how much of these are, are sort of underlying economic problems or are they uh, well, political ones in the sense of the government having to just persuade people that these steps were always uh, inevitable or a consequence of many of them of coronavirus and the, the bill now has to be paid?
2: well i think i think it's sort of i say half half but that proportion is almost certainly wrong but you know part of it is uh you know this is this is like when the the labor government in 2008 2009 said the banking crisis wasn't our fault it was a global crisis and we're just hanging on the heels of that uh, don't blame us well i think that this government will find the same problems when they try and say the energy price rises well these are global wholesale energy price rises don't blame us particularly because the energy market has not been in the uk uh, is not not a very healthy market and Certainly, companies and the regulator were not uh, in the business of making resilient business plans, just like the banks weren 't in two thousand and seven two thousand and eight they were they were riding on the coattails of the spot price and surprise surprise, when it goes up, then they go bust if there 's an energy price cap, and consumers have to pay rather than having longer term contracts which would have protected consumers and been in their interests it 's amazing to me that the regulator allowed these companies to operate that business model, and I think there'll be some i think to, to coin a, to, to borrow a phrase some hard rain coming down on gem in the months ahead
0: well, we might come back to that point i mean very, very difficult task these regulators have um particularly when they get the, given these these immensely political problems Gemma, just maybe you can just unpack some of these a bit for us because these pressures are coming from different sources aren't they the tax rises national insurance rises are coming partly because of coronavirus aren't they the energy bills the energy pressures are something else and food price rises is that partly energy is that supply chain problems could you just take us into how these things have come together
3: Sure. I mean, starting with the tax rises, um, I think I slightly disagree that that's really about COVID. COVID obviously did hugely increase uh, demands on public spending, and it has done a bit probably to knock the long term prospects for the UK economy. But actually, the tax rises that are coming in um, with the next rise in April and also the threshold freeze in income tax are much more about longer term pressures that the government has been facing in trying to square the circle between the sort of public services that the public want and the types of tax revenues that we actually generate from the size of the UK economy. And the growing demands for health and social care spending are really what is driving the need for more revenue raising. Um, So obviously the the NICS levy that was announced in September last year, the National Insurance um, Health and Social Care levy Um, that was explicitly kind of badged as being this is extra money for health and social care but that's been one of the big pressures on public spending and therefore on the need for revenue raising for several years now and that was that was a problem that existed before coronavirus so that element of the increase in the cost of living is a political choice those are tax rises the government chose to bring in and the uh, threshold freeze in income tax was announced uh long before we knew inflation was going to be as high as it is at the moment. So actually, that's ended up being a bigger tax rise than the government really intended initially. Rishi Sunak could have chosen in the autumn budget when it became clear quite how fast inflation was rising to actually ease up on that tax rise, but he chose not to. So actually, so he, he kind of chose to squeeze household finances a bit more than he'd originally expected to by keeping that th- freeze in place. The other aspects, though, are uh, broader global issues. Uh, energy price bills are, as Chris just said, driven by global energy prices. And there are some of the price rises are coming from the supply chain problems that have been um, off the back of COVID, which has sort of constrained global supply and transport of goods around the world at the same time as consumers have been actually demanding more goods um, because they haven't been able to consume some of the services that they used to consume pre-COVID.
0: Well, thanks for unpacking those things, all those different forces coming together, which justifies for once this now now overused um, uh, phrase of, of the perfect storm of the best of book titles ever. Giles, inflation, a word we haven't talked about much for years and years. What does this actually mean for the government agenda and what does it make difficult to manage for the government?
1: It means quite a lot and none of it good. I mean, inflation is the ultimate expression of the The dilemma that all economists need, which is that there are limited resources to go around, and you have to choose between them. And when when you get this kind of inflation, in particular the exogenous hit of energy prices that we're basically paying as a nation, the decision the government faces in one form or another is simply who should take the pain. Even when you have someone like uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg saying, "Oh, we need to forestall the national insurance." All he's really saying is you should borrow more and make it be paid later, or have mythical savings from the the public spending, which are going to hit somebody or other as well. So it's undoubtedly bad news. It limits the government's room for manoeuvre. And I would say also looking back over time as to when governments lose their popularity and their perceived competence of their management of the economy. Inflation is every bit as dangerous as unemployment because it's so broad based. In particular, When it's followed by interest rate rises, which is an area where we can only speculate, but if it goes far enough that the Bank of England feels it needs to continue to raise rates in order to assert its credibility or to stop a wage price spiral, whatever um, phraseology it uses around it, this then hits into um, mortgage householder costs And it it becomes still worse. So it's extremely serious for the government because it means the economy goes from being something that's just presented by a talking head about GDP statistics or small movements in unemployment towards something that everybody feels immediately. And as Chris put very graphically at the beginning, people are going to feel this absolutely immediately. They're going to look at their pay packets and see less money. They're going to look at their weekly shopping bill and see that it doesn't go as far. And just to to add a piece of personal colour... Um, some some people are going to get a lot more than that four percent increase in energy prices because they were in the fool's paradise enabled by that irresponsible energy regulation of companies offering deals that they can't afford to offer. I mean, I know that I, I was with one of these companies that basically went bust because it was it was it was using prices that were not sustainable. My price was going to rise a lot bef- just by going onto the current standard tariff. Some people are going to go first the shock to the standard tariff and then see that tariff going up by another 50% or so forth. So there are going to be some households hit immediately by damage in the economy to a degree that hasn't been seen for decades.
0: Thanks for explaining all that. uh, I'm one of those households as as well. Chris, what happened to Boris Johnson's new economic settlement? A lot of this was the the promise of higher wages.
2: The the promise of higher wages is going to look a little bit Thin. So even the national living wage, the, the minimum wage for um, prime age workers, which is going up to £9.50 in April, now that was a 6.6% increase and was supposedly show, going to show that the benefits of the economy, economic growth was really going to flow down to the red wall and for people on middle to lower incomes. Well, that now is unlikely to be a real income rise, and certainly not when national insurance increases and income tax increases are factored in. So, you know, what what has happened to the high wage, high skill economy? Well, a lot of it was rhetoric in the first place. I think we should be clear about that. And, you know, things happen. No one expected global energy prices to do what they have done. I think we should be also clear. So there are big regulatory problems which have been exposed by this, but there are also big global forces which have happened. Uh, And we thought we were going to be coming out of the coronavirus crisis into a more stable world where we could start to look, as Gemma said, at the longer term public finance pressures. Hence, we put a tax increase or the government put a tax increase for uh, this April coming uh, because it would have been a more stable world. I don't think the world of coronavirus has changed that much. Omicron has clearly complicated things, but I still think we are thinking we're coming into a more stable world. But it's actually a more stable world where our money and the UK's money in in the broadest sense doesn't go as far as it did. And as Giles said, the only question is who pays and when do we pay? And those are you know, those are the only questions. We are poorer than we want it to be. We are poorer than we expect it to be. These things unfortunately happen. Government is partly to blame and partly a bystander in this. But even if you're a bystander, you know, when people become poorer, it goes goes back to the old Ronald Reagan question to Jimmy Carter in nineteen eighty U.S. presidential election. Do you, do you do people feel richer than they did before this government came in? And at the moment, I think the answer for this current U.K. government will definitely be no.
0: When it comes to the next election, so Gemma, where are we on the, the big debate about how much a government can? Borrow and overspend—one of these things that has been the subject of deba- debate for years—and is a subject of debate, as we can see, between the chancellor and the prime minister, even within the chancellor himself, as um, uh, his party conference speech indicated.
3: I think there's reasonable agreement that governments clearly can borrow a lot of money for a short period of time. The UK government has certainly done that for the last couple of years, as have most other advanced. Economy Governments, I should say, reasonable agreement that rich countries can do that. Clearly, uh, developing countries around the world have not been able to do that during coronavirus. But the question is, how long can you keep doing that for? Despite the attraction of arguments that say, well, governments can just print money as they have been doing with quantitative easing and use that to fund government. And there's no there's no limit to what they can borrow. Um, I think most mainstream opinion is is not in that camp, it says that. There is some limit to government borrowing and eventually the government needs to get back to a point where debt is no longer rising year on year inexorably relative to the size of the economy. And that's broadly uh, what Rishi Sunak's new set of fiscal objectives are, that he wants to have debt coming down as a share of GDP um, and to get there over the next few years with a desire to sort of limit public borrowing. But this government has also demonstrated a desire to somewhat loosen the purse strings for public services. That then means that you have to pay for that through tax rises. um, And that's why we're facing some of the tax rises that are coming in over the next few years.
0: And Tory MPs, the so-called net zero scrutiny group, are putting pressure on the prime Minister to support the people who've got rising energy bills. Chris, do you think that Johnson is under real pressure from this to, to perhaps reverse the net zero agenda?
2: no i don't think i don't i think he will resist the the net zero group in that sense i'm sure he will do something to mitigate the rise in bills um but i mean how the money that is levied on top of electricity bills for part of it for social for actually to 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 limit the bills for the poorest people part of it for to help encourage the transition to net zero i mean you can label this money as However you like, you can label it as a tax if you want to or, or whatever, and you can take it off because and put it onto general taxation, but that is all you're doing so I don't think at at a stroke we will suddenly say so most of these elements that are added to energy bills are as it were retrospective that they're paying for the uh or the moves that we've already made to go down the route of going towards lower carbon emissions. And so that money has to be paid. It's been borrowed by the private sector to build wind farms offshore. Those wind farms are now operating; they're very successful, mostly, and the prices come down a lot. And that that investment was uh, was has been spent, so it has to be repaid because we are going to be using that energy now. Taxpayers can pay it, so we can put it onto income tax, or we can borrow the money and make future taxpayers pay it. But someone has to pay, and so. Uh, The only way I think that you would actually have a saving is if you said that we don't want to go to net zero at all, because clearly net zero costs us money. Uh, And I think the chances of Boris Johnson actually going and having a complete U-turn and saying, you know, all that stuff I was saying before the COP COP summit in Glasgow last year, that net zero was important for the UK and important for the world. Well, I don't believe it anymore. That's
0: not going to happen. Or oh, we can't afford it, uh, perhaps don't believe, but I, I think I think you're probably right on that. Giles, uh, coronavirus hasn't gone away, and the Treasury is currently supporting a hospitality industry, which has been squeezed by the, the Plan B rules, although it has just loosened uh, the travel and testing restrictions that have dismayed that industry. Where do you think we are on this after the success of the furlough scheme? Do you think people are expecting more from government but don't want to pay more for it?
1: The government is now very aware that what has the greatest impact is its use of rules. So I think the way it's been micro-adjusting its rules very quickly when it notices that it has the space to on the health side and it has a different makes a big difference to the economy. Um, that's that's going to be a, a, an increasing feature in my view. As for the Treasury support of it, I would say yes, the furlough scheme was successful. I mean it should be because it cost tens of billions of pounds. And I think the Treasury's concern now would be that it was too successful, that its success might have contributed to some degree towards the labour market changing in ways that has now got an effect on us through inflation and supply chain shortages and wage rises that it didn't particularly want. So I think the Treasury would be very nervous about continually um, reaching for that sort of thing. Also, um You know, I mean, the the economy was rebounding fine until we had a new surge from Omicron. So I don't think um, the Treasury will take the lesson from this that it didn't support the economy enough and it needs to continually open that up. It still has quite a lot of support in the system. Is something else you'll notice in all of the lines the Treasury provides. We've still got various business rate holidays still in place and so forth. I think all of them, I and mean, Chris can maybe remind me, I think a lot of them end again around that fatal month of April. So uh, we might all have another shock there. The assumption again is that Omicron will have passed through. If there's any Positive about having such an incredibly infectious variant out there, it has to pass equally quickly because we will all have had it to such a giant degree that um, it simply won't have anywhere else to go. So the assumption must right now be that it's going to pass through. Most companies will have survived. There isn't much need for further support beyond that. And then the economy will resume its previous trend relatively quickly and I'll be interested to hear from the other two whether they think that's too phlegmatic an analysis.
0: I'll just come back to them in a second but you raised a really interesting point at, at the beginning of that when you said one of its most successful measures was was uh, new rules and I was thinking as you were talking about whether how people are going to react if um, the government keeps having curbs in in different ways in order to uh, because of a different choice on public spending. For example, uh, rules in order to protect the National Health Service, so constraining people's liberty because of a particular decision on public spending. And it does set up really quite difficult political justifications, it seems to me. Um, yes, I mean, yeah, yes I mean,
1: uh, we, we've seen this argument sometimes on Twitter that, yes, we should protect the, the NHS, but surely the point is the NHS is meant to protect us. And if we have to damage our lifestyles too much to keep the NHS going, then what is the point of the whole system? But yeah, so far, um, I think people have broadly
0: gone along with it. All right. Just picking up some of those threads. uh, We're going to stay on the economics theme, which I think is is going to be a lot of this year. Let's turn to levelling up. Uh, That's what the government wants everyone to be talking about. Not inflation, not Christmas parties, not even Brexit. And this is its flagship policy to fix economic equality across the UK or the lack of economic equality. But it would be easier to talk about that policy if we knew what it was. Gemma, um, the White Paper has been delayed again. Why is that?
3: We were actually expecting it probably sort of alongside the autumn budget. And then it was widely trailed that it would come out early in December, and now looks to be coming out uh, perhaps towards the end of this month. Uh, the recent delays seem to be a combination of the lack of government bandwidth and all the poor publicity that there was around the the lockdown breaking parties uh, before christmas then the government was sort of overtaken by needing to plan uh, for the reaction to omicron there also seems to be some element of disagreement between uh, different senior ministers involved with this michael gove boris johnson and rishi Sinak in particular both on potentially the content, exactly what sort of policies are being pursued, but also on how much money uh, there is going to be available and where that's going to come from. All those reasons seem to have contributed to delay.
0: And you wrote a great comment piece for us this week, warning that delay is going to have consequences.
3: My main point there was that this is one of the government's big priority objectives. Um, I mean, and danger of delaying clarifying this is that we've already had departments be given their budgets for the next three years those departments and local government and the devolved administrations are all now starting to plan out how they're going to spend those budgets over the next three years and indeed they had to put bids into the spending review process over the summer um, that said how they would plan to spend money to contribute towards the government's leveling up ambitions and without more clarity on actually what the government wants to achieve on this, there's a real danger that departments don't effectively coordinate their actions. This is an ambition that really cuts across lots of different departments. Um, And you have departments from Department for Education, Department for Transport, even the Department for International Trade has priority outcomes that relate to these levelling up targets. And if there isn't clarity from the centre about actually what you're trying to achieve, there's a real risk that different parts of government don't work together, or even worse, potentially kind of pull against each other. And that was the the risk that I was highlighting. Yeah. I think some people are sort of a bit, a bit more sceptical, um, perhaps saying, well, isn't this just David Cameron had his big society, it was just a phrase, it didn't mean very much levelling up is just Boris Johnson's version of the big society. It doesn't, have much substance that doesn't really matter Um, I think the reason I'm a bit more I think it does matter a bit more in this case is that whereas the big society was quite amorphous and never really fed through into the activities of departments actually with leveling up departments really do seem to be knowing that they have an incentive to show that they're delivering on this but if we don't know what it is that they're delivering on then there may be a lot of effort wasted in pursuing the wrong things
0: yeah but you put it very well, and um, it's very striking talking to people in government, that there are lots and lots of people and teams working on levelling up, um, but as you said, not necessarily joined up. Chris, what do you think this white paper should do?
2: Well, I think, I mean, I think that's a great question, Bronwyn. Um, what should it do? Well, like, One, it should define what levelling up as far as the government... Uh, is concerned means. I think that is the most important thing and you've just heard from Gemma uh, the problems of not having a definition so government can't really know what it's actually trying to do and we sort of all know what it means broadly that it means trying to make the economic circumstances and particularly on the production side so that the economic life not not the living standards of people but what uh, the parts of the country produce more equal, so that it's not so dominated by London and the South East within England, that is. Um, But doing this is really difficult. uh, And, you know, it isn't a question of just spreading a bit more government money in all departments around the country, because that happens already. And, you know, we need to know exactly what government wants it to achieve. And then what they think the priority areas should be for action uh, where they think they'll get the most bang for the buck and I just don't think we're anywhere close to knowing that at the moment because you know you you, you, you can hear for example you know you can hear all the stuff on infrastructure you know we we hear that it, that leveling up is all about the rail services in the north then of course some of those were cut just before Christmas um, or it's about getting skills better but the trouble is that skills move and people move around the country a lot of people do particularly higher skilled people move and so it's quite you know just having skills money targeted in certain areas doesn't necessarily mean that the skills will stay there so I think we really really need to know from government what it wants to achieve first and how it thinks what the best way of doing that is Um, because without that we're going
0: nowhere and we don't, we don't know that at the moment. Giles, you've written a lot about industrial policy, regional policy, all the things that governments have done down the ages to try and improve productivity and growth. Where would you put your money?
1: I mean, this can I just um, um, yes. echo and amplify one of the points Chris has made that I felt strongly for a while, probably because I've read some of his columns there, that this is about not, not so much living standards and that you don't find that people around the country say, oh, if, if only I could live in London, I'd have a much better life. The statistics don't bear that out. It's about the production being much lower there. And as a result, currently, we have a lot of redistribution from the uh, highly productive southeast to the less productive other regions. And it's, a, in a sense, the most popular answer to that question of what is levelling up um, is a. Uh, is some sort some of further redistribution to try to boost the productivity of these places. The question I would like answered is really the how. We have noticed for many, many decades that there are disparities in productivity between different parts of the country. And we know that some of the, some of the essential drivers, them, skills in particular, that point again that Chris made, that you can do what you like with skills, but if the skills aren't sticky to an area, then the people leave and they go to where they can best earn their money, and that will still be the previous um, the, the previously Areas, But so the the fundamental argument that I haven't yet heard the government have except when you take individual thinkers out for a coffee is, is this about redistributing money and therefore spending on good growthy things? And somehow, this time round, that will make a difference. So we basically tax the whole country, spend more of it in areas that are lagging on infrastructure and skills and so forth. But this time, we'll do it in a way that it sticks and it gets its own momentum going. Or is it about institutions and incentives and all the other stuff that economists like to talk about? In other words, whether these places are sufficiently capitalist and pro-free market and able to get their own things going. And and when the government was more popular earlier in this this year and more confident, I did hear people saying, look, it's not all about money. Don't go thinking that Rishi Sunak can somehow reorder the fiscal system to such a large degree that we divert hundreds of billions of pounds to the the north and it becomes more prosperous as a result of that because, A, that's a really fiscalist model, that's a kind of socialist model and it doesn't work, and, B, we simply just don't have that much money. Instead, it should be about changing the incentives so that these places are more dynamic, less reliant on the public sector. And until we see the that debate resolved, I don't really know where levelling up is at all because they're two fundamentally different ways of seeing the economy and you have thinkers on both sides. And I don't think there, there is a single one bringing them all together. And that's what I'm hoping the white paper will fix.
0: Do you think the government should, I'm not going to say give up, but sort of try and reconcile itself and, and, and people to some areas responding more to this kind of intervention than, than others and say, look, some small towns are not going to be hubs of, of lots of businesses and so on. They, we can make them nicer places from which people you know, go to other larger towns or cities nearby. And just, you know, one of the things packed into the phrase levelling up is is um, an implication that everything will be level in some ideal world in the end.
1: I, I agree that that kind of ability to make a really clear, consistent and sometimes brave choice is surely essential for industrial strategy because you can't otherwise... um, What's your strategy if everywhere is meant to benefit at the same time? The trouble is that's always incredibly politically unpopular. I've never yet seen a government feel able to do that, even with something as amorphous as a sector. They don't often say things like, this sector matters, and that one actually can be left to capitalism to do what it's like. So good luck with doing that with certain towns and saying, for example, this should be a nice place, but a commuter town, it shouldn't have its own sort of technology centre. That takes a kind of honesty and political capital that even really popular politicians struggle to muster. And I'd be rather surprised if they were able to do it in their current state.
0: And Gemma, at the next election, do you think people will be able to say that levelling up is working, is failing, or is it just going to be impossible to judge?
3: I think as Chris and Giles have already touched on, these sort of fundamental problem that levelling up is trying to address, which is big differences in the productivity and output of different parts of the UK have been around for decades and previous governments have tried to do things about it and it has not been easy. So I think it is very unlikely we will see major progress on the big gaps that levelling up is targeting. Uh, I think the bigger sort of hope for government in sort of showing progress on levelling up is probably much more likely to be in micro things. So Public money spent to improve the look and feel of particular local neighbourhoods, which may be a first step towards leveling up, but it's only a, will only be a small part of the change.
0: Let's turn to our third subject now, and it has been around for some time. That is Brexit. Five and a half years on from the referendum, the course of Brexit is still a very live question. We've got new border rules kicking in now with more to follow as well. Lord Frost is out. Liz trust the foreign secretary is in charge. So what happens next? We're going to be joined now by Joe Marshall, who leads the IFG's Brexit work. Hi, Joe. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us. So what's changed?
4: So um, I think the important thing to say is that sort of less has changed at the start of this year than last year. So we've not had the same sort of big bang as the end of a transition period. But the new year has brought in some further changes, particularly for businesses that trade between the EU and Great Britain. So there's been another tranche of changes on imports as part of the government's decision to sort of phase in these new checks. So we've got full customs controls now for firms importing goods into Great Britain from the EU, except Ireland. Um, we've also got some new rules about having to pre-notify agri-food goods, some more paperwork that firms need to do in order to access tariff-free trade under the trade and cooperation agreement. All of these things serve to add a bit more cost and friction to doing business with the EU. Now I think it's early days to know sort of full impact of the latest set of changes. Uh you know, trade flows are quite low at the start of January. I think we've had some initial reports of a bit of a disruption, some turn back, some mistakes being made, but we aren't going to see, I don't think, these sort of drastic cues. I think the real question is whether or not these sort of latest sets of changes are going to have uh, more of an impact behind the border, sort of further disincentivising some firms from bothering to trade with the EU at all.
0: Chris, how much of an impact is Brexit having on the economy? There's been quite a lot of studies out recently capturing some of the first effects and trying to disentangle that from coronavirus.
2: Yeah, disentangling it from coronavirus, as you mentioned, is very, very difficult. But you can have a go. Uh, So what do we know so far? I think what we do know is that there has definitively been a trade effect in the first year of the new arrangement since the UK left or since Great Britain left the single market. Um, And you can tell that in two ways. One is that even though our exports to the EU and elsewhere have risen and are back at pre-New uh, Rules levels, we haven't joined in the massive export party that almost every country in the rest of the world has. So we are therefore doing worse than we probably would have done because trade flows in the rest of the world have um, been much stronger. And our imports have been definitively weak from the EU. So the, these trade barriers that have been erected do do impede trade. That is clear how much does that matter is then the really important question that flows from that and there the economics on this still very very sketchy there is nothing I don't think yet to suggest that the forecasts made back in 2016 and around the time of the referendum are wrong uh, so all of the numbers which sort of suggested sort of averaged out and Gemma was the particular expert in knowing how they averaged out at about 4% hit to incomes in the long term all seem to be pretty much going down we seem to be going down that route. But it's very early days. These are long-term estimates, 15 years or so. So we won't know after one. Uh, And it all comes down to this difficult question of trade is definitely hit. How much does trade matter for the economy? Economists think trade is important. It helps productivity. It helps the way you link. It helps, you know, in the modern world, supply chains are quite global. If you're going to be outside those, that hurts you in the longer term. Uh, But that is still unknown. So I don't want to get, I don't want to get too um, definitive about this. And I think mm. every economist should be rather cautious about mm. um, exactly what the effect will be, although there's no reason to think that the predicted effects are wrong.
0: Mm. And that, just picking up that 4%, going back to your comments on uh, the impact of, of energy bills, this is, this is another 4%. It's, it, it, people might think of it as equivalent to a recession. Yes, although,
2: yeah, so but over a very long period, so it's, long period. It, it's it's yeah. a slow puncture rather than a recession. So it's this sort of thing. It's like the UK before it joined the common market, as it was in 1973. Sort of over the long period, feeling that why aren't we quite doing as well as our neighbours or other similar countries? It's that sort of we got a we got a bit of a a weight on our back, a bit a bit of an extra burden that other countries of a similar sort of scale and size don't have um and that that's the way i think is the right way to think about it rather than thinking about it like a recession or a massive hit at, at one yeah. time yeah. to people's living standards
0: giles you hear a lot from businesses that they really hate uh, these new restrictions and the paperwork and you were looking into supply chains uh, some some time ago do you have a sense that they're going to find their way around this or that there is a permanent kind of source of friction if you like
1: I think, I mean, it has to be a greater source of friction because previously the companies uh, didn't even have to have a problem to solve. So even if the problem was soluble and you do hear some good things about new customs facilitation uh, systems that have been brought in and the government has supported customs agents and so forth, previously if you were planning to sell a product in munich or manchester you didn't really have to think about it you could sell them to both and it was it was not a problem so according to a recent economist story there's some uh, a small single figure percentage of companies have shifted their um some operations into the eu in order to avoid these problems and so we're going to lose out on that business and um and that that will be just a permanent fact i mean it's so you can you can improve it. But just thinking intuitively, if you took a part of the UK, for example, and just carved it apart and said there's now going to be a border between this and the rest of the UK, we find our ways round it. But it would be non-ideal and the trade would be less. And all the benefits of trade would um, slightly go away. It's one of the most enduring results in economics is quite straightforwardly that trade is good and when you lower trade between two areas that might find all sorts of complementarities and ways of sharing resources and swapping ideas it eventually saps you but as chris implied there the problem is it's a, it's a long-term effect. It's something that gradually impacts upon you as you just find that you're not as dynamic as before, which is why, on the Brexit side, thinkers like Lord Frost were able to say things like, I don't believe that the, the trade impact is that important to our dynamism, and instead look at all the dynamic things we'll be doing with regulation and with other parts of the world. That still can feel quite um, impressive and convincing to the pro-Brexit lobby, simply because... The, the draining effect of lots of small um, impediments that you didn't need and the lack of dynamism that happens to you otherwise, you can never really point a finger at. You just notice after many years that your limits are lower than other people's limits.
0: Yeah. So let's pick up and, and just try and explore that positive point about uh, Brexit as uh, those so, such as Lord Frost make the case. Gemma, I mean, Boris Johnson was was told this week in all the rows about energy bills, well, what about your referendum promise that Brexit would allow the UK to cut VAT on energy bills? Uh, does it, for example?
3: Uh, it does. Uh, it's The EU does impose restrictions on countries' abilities to change their VAT rates and to levy lower than standard VAT rates on any products. That is a freedom granted by Brexit. Whether it is one that Boris Johnson should use is a different question both in terms of like whether it's a, an effective policy response for the current high energy bills and then also more, more generally as kind of sensible tax policy. Um, I mean... Cutting VAT and energy bills would somewhat reduce people's energy bills, but it delivers the most benefit to those people who spend most on energy, and that is higher income households who are the ones least in need of help with their energy bills over the coming months. So that's probably not a very effective way of spending public money to help people with energy costs at the moment. Also, just in terms of general tax policy, levying different rates of VAT on different products just distorts consumers' choices between those, so it encourages people to consume more energy and less of other things. And particularly, if we are trying to encourage people to adopt more energy-efficient changes and in insulation to their household to contribute to the transition to net zero, then it's it's not good tax policy to actually do something that encourages people to go in exactly the opposite direction. It would be much better to more directly help them with living costs rather than to make that sort of change to the tax system.
0: Very good point. Joe, I want to ask about Liz Truss. How is she going to be different from Lord Frost? It's
4: a good question, Bronwyn. And I, to be honest, I don't think we quite know yet. So you're right to say there's been you know, a big change in sort of ownership of Brexit in government. We've seen Lord Frost, a sort of former chief Brexit negotiator and sort of Boris Johnson's Brexit man in cabinet, resign over Covid restrictions before Christmas. And he was very quick to sort of put the sort of EU agenda in Liz Truss's portfolio. I think we've got this question really about whether or not Liz Truss has got this poison chalice or whether Boris Johnson has found someone who can resolve some of the outstanding issues there. I think the most immediate thing in her in tray is the Northern Ireland protocol and the, you know, making. Sure, that works on a, a sustainable footing. Whether ongoing negotiations with the EU, there are lots of people poring over her the readout from her first meeting with her counterpart in the EU, looking for clues about how different she's going to be. And, and she has talked about wanting urgent progress. There are more talks going on at the moment. But I think we saw pretty much the same wording and same form of words as we got from Lord Frost. So I don't think we quite know yet whether or not she's going to, uh, you know, turn pink on some of Lord Frost's red lines, for instance. But I do think there are some big differences between Trust and Frost. I mean, she has a very broad portfolio. She's got a lot else on her plate. She's less across for detail than Frost has not been involved in negotiations in the same way. That could all signal a fresh start. You know, an ambition. For her to find something she can sell as a deal to backbenchers, wrap up the Northern Ireland Protocol, especially with one eye on the Northern Ireland Assembly elections in May, and you know integrating EU policy back into the Foreign Office could also have benefits. But in practice, she may end up delegating quite a lot of this to her new junior minister, Chris Heaton-Harris, who may be stuck between sort of number 10 and the Foreign Office. And I think just briefly, beyond the Northern Ireland Protocol, I think the other big question is what happens to the Brexit opportunities agenda. So this was sort of a Lord Frost's pet project part of his sort of empire building, as I saw it in government, but started to touch on wider economic policy. And I think it's quite unclear still where some of those bits of Lord Frost's remits are going to sit it's unclear if that, you know, that role is going to stay in cabinet office and who's going to champion it, because coordinating cross-government work in that area doesn't really naturally fit in a foreign office and won't really work there. Are we going to see someone like Ian Duncan Smith brought into cabinet to sort of lead on that? Is it going to be a junior minister, in which case maybe it won't get as much attention as under Frost? So some big questions there and a lot for us to watch out for.
0: And as you say, those things—a lot of those things—are very domestic. But the thing that is clearly falls um, most easily into the foreign secretary's uh, brief is, is the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you think there's movement there? I mean, as Giles uh, was talking earlier about, well, hypothetically, if you put a border in the within the UK, you'd get all kinds of friction. This is precisely the row, isn't isn't it? And we are heading for key elections in Northern Ireland.
4: Yes, exactly. I mean, before Christmas, we did get some sort of mood music that suggested that on some of the areas of contention, sort of medicines, customs, there had been progress. I think there was also progress towards sort of simplifying checks on goods moving between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I think there was this big area around the sort of role of the European Court of Justice in overseeing disputes around the Northern Ireland Protocol. We know that Lord Frost took quite a hard line on that, but um, it looks like there may be you know, the the language around that may be softening in a way that there is a solution to be found. Um, So I I do think that, you know, there could well be movement over the next month or two. Um, I think both sides do want to reach an agreement. I think that Liz Truss has suggested that is where she wants wants to go. Um, But I think ultimately, you know, some of this comes down to, you know, how long is Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister as well, willing to allow these discussions to go on? How long does he want this big unanswered question of Brexit to hang over him, having promised to get Brexit done at the last election? Does he really want to go late into 2022 with the Northern Ireland Protocol still unresolved, those tensions with the EU still making headlines every now and again?
0: Well, we'll definitely come back to all those points uh, before those crucial elections. Though Between now and then, we have um, the hurdle of April for the government to get over, perfect storm, cruelest month, pick your resonant phrase, of your choice. Um, But we're going to have to leave it there for this episode of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Giles Wilkes, Gemma Tetlow, Joe Marshall, and especially to Chris Giles. Brilliant that you could join us. Thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got some really exciting events coming up. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. New Year, same request. Do leave us a review. Do check out our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. A lot of brilliant new reports heading your way. So a Christmas of lateral flow tests has been gone, but 2022 looks set to be very testing for the government. See you next week.